Welcome to episode 125 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and I'm joined today uh, uh, for our interview, uh, actually joined a couple of days ago by Jeremy and Ariel Rabkin, uh, um, who are going to discuss their recent paper on Hacking Back, published by the Hoover Institution. Uh, we also have for the news roundup... Uh, a special guest, David Chris, uh, former U.S. At- Assistant Attorney General from the National Security Division of the Justice Department, uh, and now General Counsel at Intellectual Ventures, uh, and uh, uh, the producer of the first and most timely analysis of the Justice Department's uh, proposal on MLAT uh, reform and exchange of uh, uh, information with other nations, uh, uh, which we'll be discussing uh, uh, shortly. Uh, Michael Vadis is here, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we go jump in? There's a couple of really uh, significant developments. the most significant, especially for Michael, who wrote a, an influential amicus brief in the case, is that the U.S. government has lost the Microsoft Ireland uh, warrant case uh, after winning uh, two in a row and having an oral argument uh, in which at least one judge dominated with deeply skeptical questions of Microsoft. Uh, uh, it's a unanimous opinion with just a concurring opinion from the uh, judge who was a bit skeptical. Michael, what did it say and what does it mean? Yeah, it's, it's I think, a big uh, pleasant surprise to everybody who was involved on, on Microsoft's side, um, given the tenor of the oral argument, which everybody read as being uh, <clears throat> very negative towards Microsoft's uh, a position and the court pretty much adopted Microsoft's arguments, the same arguments we made in our amicus brief, uh, basically holding that you can't use a warrant served on a communications provider in the U.S. to get communications that are stored abroad because the uh, warrants issued under the Stored Communications Act uh, do not apply extraterritorially. Uh, it was, I, I thought, a very well written, very well reasoned uh, uh, opinion. Um, the interesting thing was that Judge Lynch, who was the, the who really dominated the oral argument and was so skeptical, concurred in the judgment. Uh, but you know, you're used to reading opinions like this the way I, the way I do. It's pretty clear to me he wrote it as a uh, probably as a dissent. Um, and then when he couldn't get a second vote, uh, it ended up being a concurrence. I guess he just didn't want to dissent from the judgment at the end. I think what what happened, you know, this this. Opinion took a long time to come down, and I think what was going on was the panel was waiting to see the Supreme Court's decision in another extraterritoriality case, RJR Nabisco, which came out just a couple of, or maybe three weeks ago. Um, uh, and it didn't help Lynch's cause, so I think he ended up throwing in the towel, but was probably holding out hope for a long time. That's, that's the way I'm reading the, the little scattered tea leaves, uh, from, from his concurrence in the judgment. But, but on the whole, is a big victory for, for Microsoft, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether the government tries to take it en banc or, or tries to go to the Supreme Court. I tend to doubt it, uh, but I would not be surprised if, if they did. 
Yeah, I think uh, it might be hard to um, get this. Uh, cert is, as I think, a real long shot. Uh, getting uh, on bank is not easy in the Second Circuit, so uh, uh, they might not. And I, my thought on this was um, you, when you write an opinion either way in this case, you can make it seem easy. Um, you just say, you know, you, you say the – uh, either there's a presumption that Congress didn't intend to be extraterritorial. Everybody agrees on that. And then you just have to decide on whether you think this is extraterritorial. And Justice's position was always nothing extraterritorial about it. We're serving Microsoft in the United States, and they're going to produce it in the United States. What's the problem? And, of course, um, from Microsoft's point of view, they said, well, we, we have to go to Ireland to get it, and that's what's extraterritorial. Um, but a, either way, you can make it sound pretty easy. Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, I think it's partly due or largely due to the fact that the, the extraterritoriality doctrine is, is a little bit strange. I mean, it, it, you ask whether Congress clearly uh, expressed an intent that the statute apply extraterritorially, which is usually fairly easy. It's easy in this case because the, the SCA says nothing about uh, applying abroad. But then the trickier part is to, you ask what the focus of the statute is. And then you ask, is, is the... Um, statute uh, being applied extraterritorially here. And that's where, you know, you can characterize this either way. As you say, you can make it look easy either way. I, I you know, no surprise. I think Microsoft had the, the stronger argument here. But as Lynch points out, you know, the, the government's argument was not was not crazy by, by any means. Um, uh, but I think at the end of the day, Microsoft did have the, the stronger argument. That's why it prevailed. So the, there, the, I've seen two reactions that I thought were interesting. I wanted to try out on you. One was, you know, everybody thinks this is a privacy issue. It's not. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Justice Department got a, a warrant, had probable cause. These are the things we usually expect are necessary to protect privacy. Uh, this is just a situation where, despite having all of those things, uh, the industry said, yeah, we still won't cough it up, uh, uh, and that that's not so much a privacy issue as a hating the United States issue. Uh, you agree with that? I, I totally agree that it's not a, a really a privacy issue. And that's why we didn't make any privacy arguments in, in our brief. Um, because as you say, the government did get a warrant here. It, it met the gold standard for getting the content of communications. Uh, to me, this case was all about whether it's up to Congress or whether it's up to courts to decide whether the the warrant authority extends to data stored abroad, because there are you know there there are strong reasons that that Congress might want or or that a policymaker might want that warrant authority to extend abroad, and there are also very strong countervailing uh, policy arguments, and that's you know it's a quintessential decision for a legislature uh, to make, not for for courts to try to figure out. Um, it's not their job. Yeah. So the other the other thing that uh, uh, I've heard said is this wasn't a complete. Uh, this wasn't wasn't an issue on which industry or Silicon Valley was completely unanimous. That uh, for a lot of companies that are able to store separately in different uh, jurisdictions uh, and are in the storage business, this is fine. Uh, but it really reinforces the notion that. Uh, Data localization is the way to go if you want to uh, have data sovereignty, and that that is inconsistent with what some of the big social media and uh, related uh, companies uh, uh, want, that they want to be able to uh, uh, avoid any incentives for data localization, and, and this creates some. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, I think Google was noticeably absent from uh, the array of amicus briefs. Uh, Apple and AT&T filed their own briefs that, that were pretty different from what we filed, uh, uh, you know, which were more uh, sort of wishy-washy in terms of whether the government could be able to get content. Um, and, and, you know, we're not adopted by the court, I think, fortunately. So uh, I, for for the other players, but you know, I, I think at the end of the day, data localization is is definitely the stronger trend. Um, regard, regardless of this decision, regardless of, of what we'll talk about next, with you know the government's MLAT uh, proposal, I, I think there are too many forces pushing that way right now for for that not to be where a lot of countries end up. So let's let's turn to David Chris and ask him the uh, uh, <clears throat> what the government has. Uh, proposed and how it ties into data localization. David? Yeah. Um, well, first, with respect to what they intend to do about the Microsoft case, um, the government on July 15th sent up uh, some proposed legislation to Congress, and in their cover letter, they said that they intend promptly to submit legislation to Congress to address the significant public safety implications of the Microsoft decision. So I'm inclined to agree with you based on that, that the government may not be spending a lot of time and energy seeking uh, further review in the courts. It's possible that they would, but they've said very clearly that they're intending to address this legislatively uh, with a forthcoming proposal for Congress. So for sure, there seems to be some action coming in that arena. Um, the, uh, the issue in the legislation that they did send up uh, earlier this week uh, or late last week is similar um, in some ways to what's going on in Microsoft. It's a little bit it's a little bit the opposite side of the coin. In Microsoft, the question is whether country A here, the United States, can compel the production of information or data that it's held in country B. Um, you know, can the Stored Communications Act reach email stored in Ireland? The question that's the subject of the legislation the government has sent up now is whether uh, is sort of assuming that country A can compel that data what does country B have to say about it um, in the US where the US is country B and data is held here um, the US laws generally will forbid the production of data to a foreign government even where the foreign government's laws compel the production of the data um, and that makes other countries hopping mad. Uh, the United Kingdom, for example, is very concerned about terrorists or other bad guys whom they suspect uh, who are located in the United Kingdom but have an email account, let's say, with Microsoft, and let's say their email are stored in Washington State, and the U.S. law would forbid the British from getting access to that email, even though British law, unlike, as we've recently learned, U.S. law, uh, can compel the production of data that's held abroad. And so the government sent up legislation that would fix that by removing the U.S. block to U.K. and other countries' access when there's an appropriate agreement entered into between the U.S. and that particular country. And they've got proposed legislation that would set out the requirements for such an agreement, the elements that it has to have in order to pass muster, um, and in order for it to then have the effect of uh, taking down the U.S. statutory prohibitions on producing data in response to a foreign directive. And 
I was struck by the fact that this essentially this is legislation to implement a treaty that they don't propose to sign. They, they're, they're not going to send this to the uh, Senate uh, as a treaty for ratification. They want Congress to implement uh, in advance any agreements that the Justice Department reaches while setting some uh, restrictions on what those agreements are. Is that fair? That's, that's exactly right. This doesn't contemplate treaties. It contemplates executive agreements between the, the two countries. Um, but there is some involvement for Congress. Um, first, Congress has to pass the legislation that would enable these agreements to have the effect that's desired, which is removing the U.S. prohibitions. And there are certain requirements in the statute that tell you things about what the other countries got to do. For example, it has to have strong protections for civil liberties requires the attorney general with the concurrence of the secretary of state to make a report and certification to Congress about the foreign government uh, and its attributes. Um, the statute talks about what has to go in the agreement. The statute gives the U.S. government a veto authority in case the foreign government is trying to misuse the agreement and so forth. But yes, the general framework is to enact a statute and then leave it to the executive branch to work out on a case-by-case basis within the authority that the statute grants the agreements with each foreign country. And it's pretty clear that not every foreign country is going to you know, qualify or reach an agreement with the United States. Uh, only some of them are probably going to pass muster. Well, that raises the question, which I will always raise, the, with the European Union has spent – 15 years, uh, their principal response to 9-11 was to see if they could get in the way of the U.S. prosecuting the war on terrorism and protecting Americans uh, by raising data protection issues. And uh, uh, that that virus has now infected every institution in the European Union. Uh, And so uh, any damage they can do to our intelligence collection system, they will do. Uh, Shouldn't there be language in here? I saw some vague uh, reciprocity language but it didn't look as though they were they were prepared to say if you are not if you are not uh, cooperating with us if you are interfering with our ability to collect information uh, uh, we're not going to make this accommodation for your law enforcement agencies um no i think <laughs> without um endorsing uh, or commenting in any way on the premise of your question um <laughs> This this statute, um, I think, does require reciprocity. Um, it, it, the, the requirement is that the foreign government must afford reciprocal rights of data access to the United States government. So yeah, the, the first problem we have in the United States after the Microsoft decision is, you know, figuring out whether we can write a law that actually permits us to collect data right. held abroad. Because if our laws don't permit that, then... <laughs> the British or other foreign laws blocking access won't even come into play. But let's assume we were to overcome that by appropriate legislation. Now the U.S. government could get access to data held on a server in England. Um, If we enter into one of these agreements under the statute that the Justice Department has proposed, the Brits would have to give us access to that data under our laws without inserting a prohibition through their laws. The problem with that is this is almost always going to be an asymmetric relationship. Right now, it's asymmetric in favor of the U.S. Uh, We've got a lot of data because we've got a lot of cheap storage, uh, um, and most of these countries don't. 
um, and therefore um, they're more likely to use the rights that are granted by this than we are to use the reciprocal rights. There might be a few countries, uh, maybe someday Iceland, maybe Ireland, uh, uh, certainly uh, quite possibly uh, China, um, where it's not as asymmetric, uh, but those are, are countries that might just say, you know, uh, we're just not that interested in um, doing this deal. Well, that's right. Um, first of all, I don't think the U.S. government is going to want to do deals or make executive agreements with every foreign government out there. And, and under the statutory framework that they're proposing here, they actually probably couldn't because they wouldn't be able to make the necessary certifications about the foreign government's appropriate regard and respect for civil liberties, both in its written law and in the implementation of that law. Um, and you're certainly right that it is an asymmetric uh, field right now. Um, the U.S. still retains what, you know, the folks out at Fort Meade sometimes call the home field advantage in the area of telecommunications. But it's also true, as, as you noted, that that's receding. So this may be a, a very opportune moment uh, to set up an international framework and understanding and develop some international norms for dealing with these cross-border data requests. Because the alternative is an extremely chaotic uh, environment in which U.S. providers and others are getting caught in the whipsaw of being simultaneously compelled by one government's law to produce data while being prohibited by another government's law from doing the same, and therefore facing a situation in which they are going to be committing a felony, and the only choice they have is sort of which government's felony they want to commit. That's not a good environment not good for commerce, not good for the rule of law, not good for civil liberties, not good for security. So some kind of orderly solution seems to be necessary, and, and probably this is a good moment to get things started down that road. Yeah, so strategically, from the point of view, this is obviously something that's going to be a high priority for uh, Silicon Valley, uh, because uh, it takes them out of the conflict of laws problem that you pointed out. And it also, and this is something that the U.S. government might share as a priority, reduces to some degree the pressure for data localization. If the Brazilian law enforcement agencies can get access to this data, even when it's stored in the United States, then they have less incentive to pretend that they're protecting uh, Brazilians' privacy by insisting on data localization, which is really designed to give them better access to Brazilian data. Um, so, uh, there ought to be some interest on the part of justice and a lot of interest on the part of Silicon Valley in passing this bill, right? Um, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, you never want to overestimate um, uh, the chances of a, a genuine consensus emerging. But uh, I did testify back in February with Brad Smith of Microsoft, Mike Chertoff, and, and one of the leading academics in this field, Jennifer Daskal, and I was stunned by the degree of consensus that seemed to be emerging between the government witness who had testified ahead of us and then the private sector, the academic community, and Republican and Democratic members of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, when faced with stories like Brad Smith's story from Microsoft about his employee in Brazil who, you know, he, he tells that employee, I know the Brazilians are going to come after you for refusing to comply with the court order, but I can't. I can't comply because otherwise we'll be committing a felony in the United States. So there seems to be a pretty broad coalition uh, that, that could get behind this. Um, I think the U.S. proposal that's just gone up is 
a very good step forward. It doesn't do what I was afraid the government might try to do, which is sort of do a massive overreach and try to solve all of the problems out there in the world in one fell swoop. They've, I think, taken a pretty narrow cut at the issue that they need to address. Um, there's definitely room to debate. For example, the U.S. government proposal allows foreign governments to do live intercepts, wiretaps, not just collection of stored data. That's probably going to be the single most controversial element of this and, and certainly something on which reasonable minds can differ. Um, but I am somewhat optimistic that there is a, a chance here for some actual legislation to emerge uh, before too long. I think we could get past the, the gridlock that we've seen so much of in other areas. That would be remarkable. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, thank you. Let's buzz through a bunch of other uh, issues uh, and finish up and then turn to uh, uh, our interview with Jeremy and Ariel Rapkin. Uh, uh, LabMD is expanding its lawsuit. Uh, now they're suing uh, uh, Tiversa, as you remember, was the company that they accused of engaging in fraudulent uh, uh, behavior and uh, kind of uh, blackmail uh, after finding a, a, a file uh, that had been offered for sharing on LimeWire. They, um, uh, uh, according to uh, LabMD, downloaded the uh, um, uh, file themselves, but no one else did, and then used that to uh, try to force um, LabMD to hire them. That's the burden of their uh, of the LabMD complaint. Uh, they now have decided to sue the lawyer who was advising Tiversa, uh, a, a big law lawyer from. Uh, named Eric Klein, and they've uh, specified other um, uh, companies such as Coca-Cola, whom they think um, were blackmailed in the same way as uh, uh, LabMD. So uh, that lawsuit, uh, uh, Michael Daugherty will never run out of lawsuits, uh, it would appear. Uh, hmm. um, uh, he's, he's sort of the uh, fracking industry of uh, uh, personal data litigation. Um, DEA um, a, lost a case uh, where it had tracked a suspect's phone and didn't have a warrant. That's uh, now policy to uh, to get a warrant for location, but this is the first time that I know of a judge has actually said, uh, um, "You, I'm going to suppress this evidence because a warrant was constitutionally required." Am I right, uh, Michael? Is that is that the first time? Uh, it's the first time that I'm aware of, yeah, in, involving a stingray at least, uh, as opposed to um, uh, uh, location data held by a uh, provider. Uh, and I guess this was used before DOJ's policy, new policy requiring warrants was announced. So, it, uh, you know, I don't know um, if there are going to be more cases since uh, it, it really would have to be pre-policy cases that would raise this issue again. Um, but it's kind of strange, too, because the, the government apparently got a warrant uh, in order to um, uh, get the, the phone numbers, but then it didn't, it didn't include in the warrant mention of the, of the Stingray. Which it so was, it was pro probably because it was so sensitive. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't read deeply enough into the, uh, into the record to, to see if there's any, anything that would suggest why, why they didn't do that. But it was um, – it's an interesting decision. I mean, it's it, – it follows uh, the Supreme Court's decisions in, in uh, cases like Kylo and, and Cairo, uh, which involved, uh, you know, use of, of high technology to penetrate the walls of a house to, to find heat emanations. 
uh, and the use of tracking devices. So it's it's not, you know, I'm, I'm sure you don't like the result, but it's 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 not out there. Uh, so it's it's pretty decently reasoned opinion. Yeah, I mean, you can always you can always say, oh, this is brand new technology. This is this is the technology that the phone company uses to connect your phone. It's just that the uh, uh, the DEA was uh, using it. Uh, there's nothing super cool techni- technically about it. Uh, but using it as a tracking device—that's that's the key. They weren't just using it to you know to to figure out what numbers that were, that were being dialed or something. They were they were using it to track a person's location. Yeah. I think that's why. That's why DOJ issued the policy requiring a warrant. Fair for, enough. For that uh, sort of I'll, I'll, I'll recede. Uh, but it does show, I think, that uh, when you say, well, I'm going to just say as a policy matter we're going to get warrants, you are creating a whole set of incentives that will end in constitutional rulings like this one. Yeah, well, it's just like, um, you know, Warshak in the Sixth Circuit and, and DOJ then, yep. then saying we're going we're gonna to use warrants for any sort of content regardless of how old it is. Uh, you know that, that, like you say, that that ends up becoming the the rule. So the the, the the one other ruling I wanted to cover was uh, Health and Human Services, which uh, governs HIPAA uh, data, has come out with a ruling that really is kind of shooting the wounded. Uh, um, uh, health companies have health healthcare companies have gotten a lot of ransomware where uh, uh, the uh, uh, infected system uh, starts running um, software that encrypts all the files, and they say if you want your files unencrypted, you need to come, you know, send us money, and we'll send you the key. Uh, HHS has said, well, we think that means that you have to report a data breach to your uh, customers, which you know. Broadly speaking, stepping back a, a, a step or two is nuts, right? Uh, if if somebody says your data was breached, I kind of think somebody else is reading it. But the problem with ransomware is nobody's reading it. Uh, and right. most of these systems, you know, the ransomware, the encryption software runs automatically and just encrypts your stuff without anybody from the hacker uh, uh, actually touching the data, let, let alone taking it or reading it, right? Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me too is, is that um, the reasoning was that it, it's a breach because uh, the hackers acquired the data in the sense that they took possession or control of it, even if they can't read it themselves. They just locked it up with with encryption. But if you if you take that reasoning and you apply it to uh, the vast majority of state uh, data breach notification laws. Then you've got to notify people uh, under those laws too, you know, outside the healthcare context, because almost all those statutes are written to define a breach as the the unauthorized acquisition uh, or accessing of of personal information. So if 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 HHS is saying it's you know this constitutes acquisition, then I don't see how you can argue uh, effectively that it doesn't mean acquisition under a state. Data breach law where acquisition is not defined in the statute. Yeah, I, I you know, and that, I, that just you know broadens the effect of this dramatically. I, I agree. It, 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 this is one where you can see why they thought it was appropriate. They they say if if your healthcare provider has all of his files locked up and can't provide you services, you kind of want to know. And speaking as somebody who actually experienced that uh, with MedStar, uh, I can see why I would have wanted to know. Uh, in fact, I just went back to the doctor and a test that he had recommended never got uh, performed because uh, he just wrote it down uh, a, uh, on his sheet instead of uh, putting it into the computer. Um, but they 
they took a rule they had written for purpose A and tried to repurpose it for purpose B and the unintended consequences of straining the word acquire or acquisition are going to be pretty significant. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, and quick hits. Uh, um, there's a new um, uh, malware uh, that's uh, targeting energy companies that is extraordinarily sophisticated about looking for the possibility it might be running in a virtual machine and turning off. And when you think about it, the kind of effort that was put into producing that uh, in order to get into energy companies, which are lousy targets to start with if you're a cyber criminal, means um, more evidence that uh, foreign nations are targeting our energy uh, infrastructure in the hopes of being able to threaten us with a power outage uh, if they don't like our foreign policy. Um, and uh, the FDIC has been caught covering up multiple Chinese intrusions into its network. Uh, kind of astonishing. Uh, uh, the, the IG report was written in 2013. We're only hearing about it now, uh, thanks to a uh, uh, House of Representatives uh, report. Uh, 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 astonishing that people thought they could cover that up, but apparently they could. Um, Chinese browser uh, company that has about 1% of the market uh, has been caught encrypting personal uh, uh, user data and sending it back to uh, to China for God knows what purpose. Uh, uh, what I want to, if you, if that upsets you, uh, be sure to send money to the Europocracy Prize so we can get the Chinese exports of data uh, subject to the rule of law that the U.S. has been struggling with for the last 15 years. Um, uh, and um, there's a slow start to the cyber war on ISIS. Boy, no surprise there. Right? Uh, ISIS is a lousy target for cyber war, uh, so I'm not surprised. Uh, uh, any comment on any of that? Not for me. All right. Uh, well, uh, uh, David, thank you so much for participating in this. Uh, uh, Michael, thanks uh, to you as well. Uh, uh, let's turn to Jeremy and Ariel Rabkin. So our uh, uh, interview today is notable for two uh, uh, features. Uh, first, uh, it's a very thoughtful paper on hacking back. Uh, and second, it's by a father and son team. By, uh, uh, Jeremy Rabkin is a professor of law at George Mason. Uh, uh, never got a law degree, though, did you? No. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, one so, of the so, more thoughtful. So, uh, so I'm uninhibited. Yes, exactly. And, and that has been my experience with you, that uh, you're willing to say and think things that uh, uh, more conventional folks might not uh, say or think. Uh, and um, your son contributed to this paper uh, uh, from a completely different perspective, which is as a computer scientist uh, and uh, uh, the writer of multiple technical papers, an MIT grad and the like. Uh, and I guess... Berkeley. I Berkeley, oh, I am sorry. I, um, you're right. I, uh, uh, I just assumed and I shouldn't. Uh, um, so here's my first observation, which is, it has nothing to do with your paper. It, uh, there's something sort of zeitgeistish in the difference in your careers. 
Uh, when you and I went to law school, that's what the cool kids did. I don't think the cool kids are going to law school. Uh, they're, they're going to Berkeley to study computer science. Uh, Some of us. I, I don't always get called a cool kid, but I enjoy it when I do. Um, there, um, there has been a lot of people are going into the software industry, certainly. Yeah, um, and, and you know, and Paul between, is the most popular everybody... major on a lot of campuses these days. There, there was a moment when everybody did financial engineering, but that moment sort of uh, these things never completely created. Uh, but uh, again, if you're graduating at the top of your class at Yale, you probably don't go into financial engineering now. If you have a choice, you might try something else and going out to Silicon Valley and imposing your values on the rest of us through code uh, sounds like a pretty good idea to many folks as they graduate. I think my dean will scold me if I don't say, if there are any young people out there listening to this, the George Mason Law School, now Antonin Scalia Law School, yes. is really looking for students. We'd be glad to have you. Okay. And it's okay. a very versatile degree. You can do many things with it. It is. It is. Well, it certainly worked out for me and for you. Right? Uh, but uh, for one reason or another, it's no longer uh, the coolest thing. My other piece of, for people who are listening to this, my advice for careers is Going into the field that all the cool kids go into guarantees that for the rest of your life, as you move through, as your cohort moves through its uh, uh, various stages of its career, you will have much more ferocious competition than anybody else who went into retailing or railroading. I, and so there's, there, there are disadvantages to going into what the cool kids are doing. Uh, so, but let's talk about the paper. Um, it is uh, Hoover uh, Institution essay. Um, and I guess I ought to start. Why did you write it? Because Jack Goldsmith said, why don't you write it up? He, he yes. had heard a presentation that I gave, and okay. he commissions papers for Hoover. Yeah. And I, I will say on his behalf, he's been following this debate for a long time. And he's a skeptic, as I remember, on Hackback. Uh, no, I think to the contrary. He thinks that's the only way we're going to get a handle on this. But he has been impressed with a lot of objections to yes. it. And I think the reason well, he likes... a cautious guy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, and how did you... How did you uh, Ariel, how did you get dragged into this? So uh, going back many years, right, my father and I had been having discussions about cyber conflict. Right? I'm a technology person. He does law of war. So this is sort of a natural sort of point where our interests touch. And sort of after enough you know, conversations at home, we decided we had something worth saying here. Uh, and so we've been sort of pursuing this uh, line of inquiry for a couple of years at this point. And as, with respect to the Hoover paper, at some point it dawned on us that um, – one of the key things that has not been said adequately in this field is that cyber conflict does not have to be apocalyptic. And people often jump from there might be cyber conflict to and it will result in you know mass destruction. We thought it was really important to point out that this doesn't have to be the case and that there are policy consequences of the fact that there could be a very limited cyber conflict. Yeah, I, th I think that you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, um, if people immediately start shutting down the uh, intensive care units in some hospital uh, by mistake, uh, uh, or uh, um, China launches a, a massive retaliation because somebody uh, um, objected to one of its intrusions in, a, in, in too aggressive a fashion. And none of the, neither of those is especially plausible. Uh, it's how you 
stop an argument as opposed to uh, um, having one. I agree with that. So um, let me let me start, Jeremy. What's the basic thesis of the paper? Here's here we we basically propose uh, that private uh, cybersecurity firms should be licensed to do tracing of the source of attacks and then publicize their findings, not to do any destruction, just to who did this Mm -hmm. and who are they. And there are some sort of legal technicalities, whether that's fully lawful, we think probably that can be answered. But just to start with, we we think the appeal of this is uh, it's it it, uh, brings in a lot of very, highly qualified people in the private sector, so it enhances the resources that are applied to this. And presumably these people will be hired by private companies, so they have more incentive to to, to take seriously um, threats to the private sector. And we've noticed that the government really does very little at all to protect the private sector. And to just say one last thing, um, you might say this isn't going to have a big effect on China or Russia or Iran, um, but it's worthwhile if it just raises the profile of these concerns, says to the government, our government in Washington, we know who's doing this. Here they are. Right. You want to know the most wanted? Here are their names. Here are their addresses. By the way, here's his sister. Here's his girlfriend. Here's his mother. And you now have all this information. We put it on a website. It's up to you now to do something. And I think it would be harder for the government to shrug this off in the way that it has really yes. for the last few years. Fair enough. Uh, so let me let me then start with the limitations on, on your proposal. Uh, it is not hacking back in the sense attacking back. It is not trying to cause damage to the network of your attacker. Right. Um, it is instead... Uh, engaging in espionage, essentially, or investigation, if you prefer, uh, but pretty wide-ranging investigation, going into the networks of adversaries and third parties in order to gather information on your attacker. Yeah, and the first thing I want to say is um, we have this category, and everyone knows it from their favorite TV shows. It's called a private investigator, and private investigators are often extremely effective this is the premise of many TV shows. They're more effective than the police. That is in, the premise, in, too. Yeah. Right? In getting the information. And they also can show the police that this this is not a dead case. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the, you should reopen this. Look at this. It's not a suicide. Right? So uh, if you think of this as an analog to private investigators, I think right away it, it looks both more plausible that something can be done, but also perhaps a little reassuring to people who worry that this is going to launch us into a confrontation with the government of China. So the limitations that that implies is uh, licensing or some form of trust. Um, and, of course, uh, you shouldn't be causing damage. And presumably, if you cause damage, what, you're, you or your client or both are liable for it? Sure. Yeah, okay. Depends, I mean, who the damage is. Right. Presumably, we're not interested in paying off the attackers for incidental damage to them. Right. If there's damage to third parties, yes, they should be compensated. Okay. So, and and there will be interesting third parties. Presumably, there's interesting questions. You must see this about just how innocent these third parties are. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't, and sometimes it's very hard to tell. Right. 
Yeah, and I mean, we have a legal system. If the third parties feel harmed, they can sue, and we can have a court case, and there will be a certain amount of discovery. And if it turns out that the third party is not an innocent third party, but is, for instance, the banker for the criminal, maybe the banker doesn't want to sue in that case. Right. No, I, I think because they don't want to go through the discovery process uh, that the judiciary would oversee. Uh, so yeah. I, 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 I see the limitations, and those are very plausible, and I think uh, – unleash a lot of resources that um, are right now have chalk on their cleats uh, uh, right up against the line gathering this information. Um, I, I think with the objections will come uh, from people who say, wait a minute, if you're gathering info, if you say you're gathering information against somebody who hacked you, does that mean you can just wander around uh, breaking into banks looking for uh, uh, transfers of money that might be tied to this? Uh, is there some limiting principle, particularly with respect to um, third parties and the scope of the investigation uh, or who you have to tell about it. Uh, you know, uh, private investigators in uh, even on the Rockford files uh, don't get to break into houses without without the risk of being arrested. They don't have that authority. Um, so uh, what kinds of limitations do you impose on the scope of the investigation? I, I'll start. I'll just say I think the honest answer is um, we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's see what happens. And I think that um, people in this industry, in this field, they will pay attention if someone gets in trouble. Right. Right. Yeah, oh, for and, sure. Right. And so we'll see what happens. Um, it's not yeah. obvious to me that um, there's a good cause of action for somebody who can show, hey, you looked at my stuff. Right if it hasn't been misused in any way that hurts you. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, there may be things that... We're all getting used to that, huh? Right, right, exactly right. So uh, there may be things that, um, I mean, for sure there are things that I haven't thought of, probably my co-author hasn't thought of. There are probably things that people in this field who get a contract to do this kind of investigation, if they're starting right away, they may not be aware of things that may cause trouble, and we'll find out over the next few years. But I, but as you say, there's a lot of this going on anyway. So I, I, I mean, that doesn't seem to me a tremendous objection. It just shows that, okay, we, as in any other profession, uh, you learn after a while certain ethical boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another thing to say is that we suspect this is going to be much more pragmatic and less legalistic than uh, it would be for a domestic investigation here. It is likely the case that we would be comfortable with private actors poking around uh, Chinese or Russian networks in ways we would not want them poking around British or Japanese networks. Right, that you can do, that if there's a country with whom we have good law enforcement cooperation, it would be uh, unhelpful to have private actors making trouble. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's a country with which, with which we do not have good law enforcement cooperation, we might be more open to things. So that raises... Right, the... This is, among other things, a, uh, let's say, a threat that you can hang over the heads of countries who are unhelpful to American law enforcement. Right. Which the, is, the, if the... you are not helping us in investigating cybercrime, we will investigate it on our own. In your networks. Yes. And, and you, you, you have a, a sort of standard uh, bumper sticker response, which is not unlike the one we get from China, which is, you know, we're, we're very concerned about actions uh, of, of hacking attacks. And uh, if you present us with all the evidence, uh, we will be 
sure to uh, to check uh, to see whether that was an unjustified intrusion into your network. And by the way, how did you actually catch this guy? Um, and uh, usually at that point, nobody uh, wants to share the information. So you, you could have that. Uh, uh, but it does raise this question. Um, and I didn't see this in the paper. Maybe I missed it. Uh, you You deal with the modest probability that there'll be a, a massive retaliation. But what about the prospect that the Russians and the Chinese will say to their militias, well, if you think you've been attacked by the United States, have at it. Uh, that seems to be the, the policy they're uh, taking. And if you want to hack into CNN and see whether they really are telling lies about you, uh, about China, um, in violation of Chinese law, then we're not going to stop you. Yeah, I think that's a. Are, are they stopping those people today? <laughs> well, that is the that is exactly I think the right question. Uh, how much I was going to say that. Okay. But... <laughs> well, he's quicker, you know. He is. You know, the reflexes of you. You're quite right. Uh, yeah, I I I do think that is a, a good question. That uh, what is it that the Chinese or the Russians might want to do in our networks uh, that they feel they can't do now, and it isn't much. Yes, and also. Something we do just mention in the paper, but I think is important. Um, the consequences of revelations, if that's what we're talking about, we're going to reveal embarrassing mm -hmm. information about you. I think uh, people who live in a closed society, it's it's potentially much more dangerous to them than it is to anyone at CNN. Um, so you might think, although uh, uh, I'm not sure Hillary Clinton would see it quite the same way, the uh, disclosure of all her emails might be and, a and problem. After, and after all of that, she's still ahead by five points. Well, there, there. <laughs> we're a very understanding we're, and we're, patient we're. country. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so as long as we are mentioning things in the news. Yes. Uh, uh, what's Edward Snowden doing in Moscow? Right. We're already in a world where the Russian government is prepared to offer aid and assistance to Americans who want to embarrass the United States government. And I, I think that, you know, anything we do is not going to stop them from doing that. Yeah, so I, I, I do. Well have ours too. I, I agree with you. I think that the Russians are very alive to the opportunities and the risks of something like Wikipedia, Wikimedia, Wikimedia WikiLeaks. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, and uh, uh, there, there's widespread suspicion that they have utilized those channels uh, for their own purposes and will continue to do so. So uh, uh, you're absolutely right. So uh, one of the ideas that uh, you talk about is whether we need new law, uh, and that you, you kind of dig into that in two ways. One, does current law really prohibit this? And second, uh, could we find a way to accommodate this interest in a sort of experimental way rather than passing a new law? Um, and you come out in favor of let's not rush to do something new. Yeah, so there are two reasons for that, and one is just our experience has been that um, it's incredibly difficult to get Congress to agree on precise language for a new law. Right. It was just such a Herculean effort to get to the, uh, what's it called, Cyber Security oh, Information cyber security. Sharing yes, Act, yes, yes. and it's such a modest measure, right, and yes. it took five years of intense wrangling. So the first thing is if you say, well, let's wait until we change the law, you could be waiting a long time. Right. But the second thing is if you change the law, you're really making a commitment. You're saying, yeah, we really want to do this. And, and you don't know for sure if you do. Yeah. 
Right. So maybe we should just start off. Uh, something we don't say in the paper, but it's worth reminding ourselves. Uh, this administration in particular has pioneered a lot of kind of public announcements. We're not going to enforce this law. Yeah, true. And I, I we're not calling for that. But um, the, the the main statute here, the um, uh, Computer Fraud abuse. and Abuse Act, right, from the 1980s, it has a wholesale exemption for law enforcement. And one could say, at least plausibly, it's plausible interpretation of it, that that would allow the Justice Department to say the following 12 private companies are deputized to undertake this, and we regard that as law enforcement. And I don't see who would have standing to challenge that. So if the Justice Department wants to say, we think we're not going to prosecute you, I think that covers it. And that allows them, if they are... uh, creative and uh, inclined to do this, to say you're deputized up to this point and no further. Yes, yes. And yeah. also and also gives them leverage because they can say that we have, in effect, given you a badge, a license, and we can take it away promptly. Yes. Ariel? Yes, I was just going to say that. Okay. Uh, well, you know, the uh, the reflexes of, of age uh, beat you out. <laughs> uh Okay, I, I, that does make sense. Uh, let me put a um, twist on that. Um, the law enforcement authorities that can be exercised uh, uh, to deputize people are not limited to federal authorities. Um, if there is a creative and enthusiastic attorney general uh, listening to this podcast, uh, that attorney general could, could say uh, – for companies that are organized and headquartered or have facilities inside my state, I'm willing to uh, engage in a limited deputization uh, and uh, uh, could impose all of the same restrictions uh, uh, and at the same time might end up turning their state into a center for certain kinds of cybersecurity activity. You know, that's very attractive. It has this one little um, catch, which is you'd need to have the federal Justice Department say it's okay with us if you do that. Because what otherwise somebody who – well, somebody who got the authorization or was seeking the authorization from – pick the state you like, Texas, right. let's say. A lot of tech industry there, mm-hmm. kind of aggressive culture, right? Mm-hmm. Stand your ground and all that. So somebody who was going to get an authorization from the Attorney General of Texas or whatever it is might worry that Loretta Lynch doesn't agree and is going to prosecute them. Very tough to prosecute. The, the statute just says, are you exercising Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. I agree with that. There's a rule I, of lenity, I, as you point I, out. I, t- I, t- I think that if, if I were a lawyer and I were defending these people, I'd think, yes, this is worth fighting. But if I were um, an executive of, of this kind of security firm, I'm not sure I would be quite ready to, to undergo this test because you don't want it known that you're being sued. That's true. Right? Uh, so one of the analogies that I had not thought of that I, I really liked, partly because it, it tweaks the State Department so, the State Department being the source of all of the hand-wringing and uh, 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 worries about uh, how all of their governments react to this, uh, you point out that the uh, uh, State Department currently 
engages in naming and shaming on the basis of private investigative work by NGOs who are looking at the human rights practices of uh, countries whose law they violate when they gather that information. Yes, I thought that that was just a kind of pedantic detail, but before you liked it, Jack Goldsmith said, that is a great point, yeah. because I guess he has experience also at how annoying the State Department can be. Well, they, you know, hand-wringing is their profession, yes. uh, at least in, in interagency circles. So anybody who's been in the interagency has had their hands. And, and, and he's been there. Yes, exactly. So I, I'm sure that that's the source of the uh, uh, um, the enthusiasm for the argument. <clears throat> but it's true. I And uh, as as you say, states don't like that. They, they believe their law has been violated, but they don't immediately say, we're going to send people to the United States to gather information about your violations of uh, international human rights law uh, in violation of your law, uh, maybe because it's easier to file FOIA requests. But uh, uh, the... Uh, the massive retaliation that is raised as a hobgoblin in this context doesn't seem to have eventuated uh, in the other context. And I think that the, there's the same situation, which is it's threatening to them when we point out terrible things that are happening in China. It's not threatening to us when they say, Oh, food, the food stamp program has been cut back. Whatever they say, we've heard it before. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's been said and meaner, yeah. uh, uh, already in our domestic uh, debates. Yes. Uh, Ariel, I got people, a, 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 okay, go ahead. People talk a lot about asymmetric warfare. This is an asymmetry that helps us, so we should use it. Yeah, that's what I wanted to dig down on, uh, a, a little. It, it seems to me, um, one of the, problems with defending networks is the networks continue to proliferate. We continue to embrace new technologies, and that doesn't look like it's going to change. And we know now that every time you embrace new platforms, new technologies, uh, you're opening a whole new set of attack surfaces. Uh, so uh, the idea of defending our networks with, uh, uh, and that only idiots are subject, are subject to attacks, if they had only patched or done whatever had to be done, they wouldn't have had this problem, which has sort of been the, uh, I will say, the uh, the conventional wisdom of software engineers and security engineers for 30 years. It just seems completely implausible to me, uh, which is why this approach seems more plausible. Uh, I, I, am, I, am I right to blame the engineers for this? So... Over time, people have come to understand just how hard computer security is, which I think was not as obvious 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, among other things, 20 years ago, the people who were attacking networks were hobbyists, and now they're professionals. And I think it was eye-catching to people once you sort of have a lot of sort of hardworking professionals trying to break into places, yeah. just how many ways there are to do that. Right, that as the threats have become much more serious and much more... Uh, Intensive. So what People I have said, oh gosh, there's a lot of stuff we hadn't thought about in, from a security perspective, and now we have to. So people are starting to sort of see sense about this and understand sort of just how hard the defensive problem is. Well, one of the things that, and, and I, uh, apologies for plagiarizing myself, but occasionally I try to uh, um, popularize Baker's Law, which is our security sucks, but so does theirs. Uh, and buried in that is 
the notion that if our if we can't secure our networks uh, and there isn't any immediate prospect of securing our networks, the one advantage we might have, the one asymmetry we might have, is exploiting the fact that the people who are attacking us cannot be better at securing networks than we are. And I, I, I my sense is that that's true, uh, objectively. Uh, your view on that? Uh, I have never tried breaking into any Chinese networks. I have no personal experience here. Uh, if I had to guess, I would guess that they can't be a lot more secure. Uh, you could maybe tell a story about how if it's a more centralized country, you have some security benefit from that. Uh, you could maybe tell a story about we have more networks, and so there are sort of some difficulties with that. On the other hand, we are a richer country, and therefore we can afford to have more people trying to secure things. So you'd maybe expect those to roughly cancel out. Mm-hmm. So, so call that a qualified endorsement. Of so let me, let, me, let me try another uh, aspect of this. It seems to me that inevitably um, the amount of information about us, and may not be information that we are actually in control of uh, or able to secure, is increasing as about as fast as Moore's Law, and that the proliferation of the information makes attribution – easier over time, not harder. Hmm. Uh, maybe. I mean, it probably in some ways helps. I wonder how much it helps for, for attributing any one particular attack. Uh, I, I believe this is true about attacks in general, that sort of over time, as you sort of gather more stuff, you're able to say, we believe the following people are probably you know, conducting computer attacks. I w- would not expect that this makes it easy for any one particular attack to say we know who did it. Because the amount of information you have on that one topic might not have grown very. For, for what it's worth, I have seen that claim in print, mm-hmm. and I will send the citation okay. to both of you. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, um, so last topic, at least, that I want to cover is uh, um, the objections, not from the handringers, but from the, uh, the Jacksonians, that this isn't actually going to solve the problem. Uh, and... Uh, um, you you actually addressed that, I thought, but uh, uh, what's the best response to that argument? Donald Trump. <laughs> Meaning that if you... Think about it. <laughs> Do you really want to go through with that? No, no, no. I would say, I mean, I, I, I think it's entirely possible that this... I mean, we're not offering this as a panacea, a cure-all. Right. It's stepping up our game a level. Right. And we'll see how that goes. And at the very least, I think it's a reasonable hope that it makes our government more aware of this and makes it harder for our government to shrug it off. And and also the countries that are sponsoring this kind of activity, it makes them a little more aware that we're paying attention and we're really concerned and we're in your face. And then we'll see where it goes from there. But I think uh, – There's some obvious follow-ons once you've said, okay, it's the following 25 people in Shanghai. Right. Right? Um, There are things you can do to them. Now, that may not be a cure-all either, but but, um, it starts to affect their careers, and they start perhaps to be a little bit more worried, and the Chinese government perhaps gets more worried that – uh, this is starting to look like an international incident, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm happy to stipulate that um, we're not going to make progress until 
the United States government decides that it is willing to invest more diplomatic capital in this, right. that it takes it seriously and that it is willing to antagonize other countries. Right? We've had a lot of um, hacking, really destructive hacking attacks from Iran. Yes. And I think the Obama administration has decided, no, that's okay. We're kind of subordinating everything to the nuclear agreement. Uh, I think that probably can't go on for a lot of reasons. And maybe they were already indicating that when they did this prosecution a few months ago of Iranian hackers. Right? But before you get to the stage of the United States government saying, okay, we're imposing economic sanctions, we're really going to hurt you, you got to get this to a level of visibility in which the government really is focusing on it. Fair, fair enough, because we spent 10 years in which uh, people said, this is really serious. Uh, yes. We've got to do something about yes. it. And – the body politics said, "Oh, I don't believe you. You're 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 uh, overreacting. You're too. Uh, uh, you want a ju- new justification for the defense budget. All of the usual things, uh, because the case for these attacks was all classified, and the climate only began to change and has now completely changed after the GhostNet uh, report that came out that said this is what the Chinese government is doing to the Dalai Lama's network. Uh, yes. Uh, and once somebody other than the U.S. government said it, uh, it acquired a, uh, an aura of truth that it didn't have before. Yes. I think the most effective yeah. political speeches are ones that have specific examples. Yes. And this is providing the specific examples. Yeah. Another thing to just remind ourselves is this is a very sort of low-cost intervention to encourage private actors to poke around. This does not cost anything. It does not foreclose us from doing other things as sort of as a government later on. Right. So this is a sort of easy, safe, cheap first step. Okay. So last last question on, on my part. First yeah, my last question is letters of Mark. You've talked about this, and you have an interesting – um, discussion of letters of Mark, uh, which suggests uh, it's probably not the first weapon or maybe not even the last that you would suggest we, we turn to. Well, people who know about this uh, understand that it was piracy. And the incentive for the person who received the letter was, thank you very much. I now get to capture loot from our enemies and keep it. Yes. All right, I have to pay off the government a little, but for the rest, I get to keep it. So, yes. So we don't really want to enlist pirates to help us. Okay. So from that point of view, let's not use the expression letter of Mark. But um, it, it just a, a fact that has been forgotten. Uh, this goes back to medieval times. And the original purpose of this in medieval times was there were merchants who complained to their kings. This is mostly Mm -hmm. in England. And they said, um, you know, my stuff has been taken, and now you have to get it back. And Edward I, or whoever it was, said, well, ah, sorry, we're kind of busy. We don't have a lot of resources. Why don't you go over to Scotland and just retrieve the stolen cattle? Or if you can't do that, take someone else's cattle from Scotland. Speaking as a Scot, we would for sure do that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what the Scots did. Of course, there were all these border raids, right? And then they said, oh, you can take stuff from France. But the original purpose was government saying, we can't protect your property, so we're going to license you to do something self-help. And it actually does make sense that we encourage people to think about what they can do to um, secure themselves. Makes sense. Um, When we end these uh, interviews, we usually ask people if they have 
books or papers or events that uh, they want to publicize. So uh, I'll start with Ariel. Ariel, have you got any uh, upcoming uh, events that uh, listeners should uh, uh, think about attending? I don't think so. Uh, there's just the Hoover paper. Okay. I'm really read. reassured that he said that. I was a little afraid that he was going to talk about his appearance at the next uh, Star, Star Trek fan club. Going to be appearing with pointy ears. <laughs> I, I, I think I think you're twenty years behind on. Oh, sorry, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, how about you, Jeremy? I don't go to Star Trek fan clubs either. <laughs> but he can mention that yes, you can you can access the paper on the Hoover website, uh-huh. and if you just put in our names, R A B K I N. Okay, it's, uh, it is. I, I have to say, it is. Um, uh, the least heated and most uh, informative of the discussions of this topic that I've seen. So uh, in 15 or 20 pages, it really uh, uh, takes people deep into the issue and leaves them uh, with a lot of interesting ideas to mull over. So thank you very much. Thank you. Ariel, thanks a lot for, uh, for participating. Thanks for having us. All right. Our thanks to Jeremy and Ariel Rebkin uh, for that uh, uh, great uh, interview. Uh, if you uh, want to send us feedback, uh, we're always glad to hear it. Uh, send the feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to say something nice about us, though, go to iTunes and write a review. Uh, we're getting a lot of nice reviews, uh, uh, but the most recent one was a month ago, so um, uh, we welcome another. Uh, this has been Episode 125 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We hope you'll join us if we, next time as we provide insight into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.